Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer podcast, recorded live from the University of Vermont's Continuing and Distance Education Department with your host, Greg Dunkley. Whether you're looking to break into the craft beer industry or start your own brewery, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will discuss all aspects of the craft beer industry from sales, operations, marketing, trends, and analysis with industry experts and thought leaders. If you'd like to be part of the show, please call 929-477-1757. And now here's your host, Greg Dunkling. Well, good afternoon. This is Greg uh, Dunkling from the University of Vermont, uh, the Business of Craft Beer blog talk radio show. Uh, we're coming to you live from Burlington, Vermont. Uh, if you've dreamed about opening your own brewery or looking for a career change into this industry, uh, our online program offers industry-specific knowledge to make that possible. Uh, your instructors are craft beer experts from across the U.S. and Canada. The University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer program was developed for those who specifically want to learn about the business side of this exciting industry. And for further details, give us a call at 800-639-3210 or visit our Facebook page at UVM Business of Craft Beer. Okay, uh, today we are going to examine trends uh, in the craft beer industry and dig into some of the financial details to get a, gain a better understanding of the financial vitality uh, in the craft sector. Uh, much of the media focus on craft involves, of course, the ever-growing number of breweries, but what about the health of these breweries? Uh, with nine out of 10 breweries today operating at 2,500 barrels per year or less, if there is an industry slow, slowdown, can many of these small breweries survive? Recently, we've heard about large chain stores refusing to take on new brands or restaurant and bar groups in the DC, Virginia area paring down the brands they carry, actually reducing the number of tap handles. The larger, well-established national brands do well, as do the local brands, yet others are not moving well enough to, to warrant earning a handle. Are these early indicators foretelling an industry slowdown or of gr greater competition, or are they merely anomalies? So today's guests are Nick Petrillo, an analyst for Ibis World and author of an August 2016 report, Craft Beer Production in the U.S., and Chris Farman from Small Batch Standard, uh, leading financial tax and growth strategist for breweries. Uh, Nick and Chris will offer views on the health of today's craft beer industry, as well as growth projections that may impact financial projections of many breweries. So let's start. Uh, Nick, um, welcome to both Nick and Chris. Uh, Nick, first, uh, I'd like to bring you in to talk a bit about your uh, 2016 report craft beer production in the u.s which you authored of course um good morning you, greg uh, good morning thank you for joining us 
Thank you for having me. Um, the industry from 2011 to 2016, of course, saw amazing growth uh, in the neighborhood of 20%. Um, going forward from uh, 2016 to 2021, you are projecting a per annum growth of about 4.5%. What are the indicators that lead you to this projection, and which, of course, suggests a significant slowing of, of growth? So first of all, um, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, Ibis World has been over the past five years pretty bullish on the craft beer market. Um, and I think that's been reflected year over year in the massive growth that we keep getting every single year, um, specifically from the Brewers Association. Now, in 2015, the Brewers Association put out some new data that suggested not necessarily that the industry was declining, but that the number of establishments, which had been growing in double digits since 2011, had actually slowed just a slight bit. Now, our projections over the next five years are still pretty positive. We expect the industry to grow at a 4.4% annualized rate. However, we've consistently thought that the best way to evaluate how strong this industry is going to grow is to take a look at sort of the macroeconomic picture. Um, what is per capita disposable income looking like? What is per capita expenditure on alcohol looking like? Uh, what are the excise taxes on beer? And when you combine this together and put all these puzzles, uh, puzzle pieces together, what you get is a picture that suggests that Americans do not typically consume a lot more alcohol on a year-to-year -year basis. Now, 4.4% probably doesn't sound particularly strong for the craft beer industry, but when you look at the large breweries industry as a whole, which we expect to grow at 0.9% over the next five years, we think the craft beer industry looks great. Um, uh, just to follow up on that, um, certainly uh, millennials are a, a major factor in the growth of craft, and they uh, consume you know, a significant uh, percentage of craft. Uh, do you see any indication that millennials are increasing, decreasing, or pretty much staying level in terms of their consumption patterns? Yeah, I think millennials play a pretty key role in the overall consumption of alcohol. Um, again, this is not just for craft beer or for beer in general, but for all alcoholic beverage sales. So while they do represent a key mar target market that is growing, I think the sluggishness of all alcoholic beverage sales over the past five years is largely a result of consumers age 55 and older. This is a growing market segment. It's getting larger and larger with baby boomers retiring. So this could be a key area of concern for craft breweries over the next five years. Let's take a moment to explore uh, typical margins in the beer industry, <clears throat> which of course varies a great deal depending on a, a number of factors. Can you offer us a big picture view of the historic trends in the beer industry? Sure. Well, currently our estimates say that the average profit margin for a craft brewer is about 9.4% of their annual revenue. And as you mentioned, this can fluctuate drastically depending on the quality they produce, the, sort of the target price that they're looking to achieve in the retail market, and any other sort of costs that, that can fluctuate wildly based on seasonal trends and, and grain and, and, and hop prices. So for us, 9.4 is the prevailing rate. This has been fairly constant over the past five years. Uh, in 20, 2011, it was at 10.9%. So there was a slight dip according to our estimates. 
And over the next five years, we project it to be about the same at around 11% by 2021. Okay, we're going to uh, hopefully get into some of these details um, from a slightly different micro perspective in a moment. Um, I'd like to welcome Chris Farman from Small Batch Standard, uh, based in Jacksonville, Florida. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me, Greg. Um, your firm works with a number of breweries across the country. Um, could you briefly describe the, uh, the number you work with and define the capacity of this work? Sure. So we're currently serving uh, 21 breweries and two distilleries, primarily up and down the East Coast in various capacities. Um, you know, five years ago, um, six years ago, actually, uh, it was 100% compliance-based. And what compliance-based means is uh, I saw uh, a need early on, given the complexity of the back office, and the tax requirements and the filing requirements to offer process solutions, software solutions, uh, and just really try to keep the back office of the brewery organized uh, as much as possible uh, with the end goal of filing a tax return or reporting to investors. And over that time, we've really evolved into more of um, strategic growth and, and strategic counsel, if you will, uh, given where the industry is going and the data that we've we've, we've collected um, over over the years. So, uh, we all of our um, our lens is still very quantitative. Um, so we will we will develop a strategic plan or talk about vision or talk about strategy with actual. Uh, balance sheet and income statement m metrics in mind. Um, so that's currently uh, uh, the position we're we're helping uh, breweries with. Okay, great. Uh, in a <clears throat> recent paper uh, you wrote uh, entitled "How Do You Position to Sell Your Brewery in 18 Months," a rather provocative title. Uh, we'll get into the heart of this paper in greater detail in a few minutes. But Chris, you described um, the bid. 90 mini crash where approximately 100 breweries closed. Um, when you compare today to the craft market of the 90s, you stated there are some striking similarities. Uh, what are these similarities in your view? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'm just going to piggyback off what Nick said earlier on. Um, first was the, the slowdown of the market, 20% um, growth over a number of years. And uh, there's a, there's already we're experiencing a slowdown now, and then ex an, an expected slowdown uh, um, uh, moving forward as well. So there's that that's one uh, you know identical um, uh, similarity in the 90s. There the I think the breweries grew to about a thousand, just over a thousand, and uh, we saw a slowdown starting in the Northwest. Uh, and uh, kind of trickle across the country. Um, I would say the next the next thing is the, the distributors uh, and uh, distribution distribution growth. Uh, currently, there's a lot of consolidation with distributors. Uh, I've actually coined the term distributor fatigue. Um, so you, the breweries really need to remain uh, above the line, quote unquote. Um, to stay top of mind for the distributors and uh, not have uh, pickup schedules cut, orders cut, 
and and things that can disrupt an already busy and uh, maybe cooler constraint brewery who's relying on that distributor to hold. They've been they've been they've been picking up at a certain schedule. They've been holding a certain quantity, minimum inventory quantity, and now that stuff's disrupted. Um, so. Really, the, the two indicators that I talk about in the paper are, number one, just the overall slowdown of craft, and then number two, um, distribution uh, disruptions. Okay. Um, you, you also reference um, another factor uh, described as consumer fatigue, uh, perhaps an indicator of, of uh, an impending contraction. Could you explain that? Sure. Uh, as you both know, uh, when you uh, when you go to a retail or package store these days, you have so many options. You have upwards of 20 IPAs to choose from. Um, you soon are going to have 50 Pilsner to choose from. Um, consumers are feeling the fatigue when they walk in and see all this all the choices. Uh, what we've been told is. When that fatigue and anxiety sets in, they default back to uh, the brands, the labels that they know, craft or even not craft. Um, just given given so many options, they may say, oh, well, it'll be there next time. Maybe I'll try it next time. Or they're just getting settled in their ways of, uh, of drinking certain brands. I'd love to hear... Your, y'all's thoughts on on this idea of consumer fatigue, and, and do you experience it when you attend, you know, when you when you when you go to the bottle shop? I know I personally do, um, and I'm sure that's something that's common with a lot of consumers these days. And I think what's interesting is, you know, according to our research, uh, 20% of all the beers sold in the craft beer industry are IPAs. Uh, that's that's the leading brand or that's the leading style at the moment. Coming in at second is seasonal, which is about 19%. So if you add those two together, we're talking 40% of the beer market is dominated by a beer that might be perceived by sort of the casual beer drinkers as um, somewhat abrasive, perhaps, compared to traditional premium beer. Or in the case of seasonals, something that they don't intend to purchase more than one or two of. It's sort of a novelty. So when 40% of the products generated by this industry are by design um, something that consumers might not gravitate to time and time again, it's, it can, you can kind of understand how consumer fatigue might set in relatively quickly. Um, I, I wonder, um, you know, sort of back to what I referenced earlier, uh, um, Chris Rice from All About Beer mentioned that some, some of the word on the street was that, you know, the large uh, restaurant bar groups in the D.C., Virginia area were actually reducing the number of tap handles, um, maybe, maybe because of this factor that, that too many products uh, represent, represented um, uh, just some confusion. Uh, people would tend to purchase those, those well-known national or regional uh, brands and then some of the local brands but the sort of mid-range um, outside of their region, maybe not so much. Um, is this an example of, of what you're talking about, that people are, you know, when, when push comes to shove, they might, if they don't know what's on there, they will resort to a brand that they, you know, they've has been a, a, a preference, uh, preferred maybe product over time, and they'll just resort 
back to that um, rather than trying something new? Exactly. It's it's the it's the path of least resistance, the low hanging fruit. Um, they they understand the brand. They've seen it. They've tasted it. So uh, just why not stick with it rather than um, what may be perceived as a risk at that dinner or at that bar experience? Um, there's just so many options out there today um, that people naturally go back to what is comfortable for them and, 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 and less risky, especially when you move in that unknown um, uh, the the generation above the millennials and then the generation below the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 that's really the unknown two generations there that um, may not be as loyal to craft um, due to a number of reasons and the choices, the number of choices are not helping it. Yeah, good point. I, I don't see millennials, and back to your question to us, um, I don't see millennials ever moving back to big beer, but I do see millennials, um, um, you know, being loyal uh, to the industry and maybe more um, willing to experiment all the time, whereas some of those other segments, uh, um, probably the segment that I represent, um, might in fact uh, resort back to the tried and true, you know, the things that we've we always know we'll have the same quality regardless of where we purchase it. Sure. Chris, you, you cite something else which was interesting, which was timing, uh, another indicator for a market correction. I think um, uh, to quote you, the last brewing boom and bus cycle lasted nearly 10 years, end quote. So you see the beer market as being predictably cyclical, um in in the research for the paper uh, this was just another indicator that i um i decided to cite uh i i do believe um all industries have cycles um i do believe craft beer is a disposable income consumer product um i do believe in the next slowdown recession uh what you know there will be an effect on on uh on on the purchase of craft beer um, so th- it'll all be timing in 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 my in in my perspective um timing of when the next um slowdown happens whether it's caused by banking financial markets real estate markets um uh Oil markets, uh, and I don't have I don't have a, a prediction on that, but I do believe um, the disposable income portion, um, w- uh, which is so closely tied to craft beer, is going to have an effect on it. And and industry cycles generally happen eight to ten years. Uh, I'd love to hear Nick's thoughts on. On that, on my comment about the cycle ten years and and what what he thinks about that. Yeah, you know, I I completely agree in the sense that this is a very cyclical industry and it's prone to the same economic, uh, you know, independent variables that can happen at any given point. Um, over the next five years, we at Ibis World don't expect there to be any sort of decline in annual revenue or decline in the number of establishments. 
but what will be interesting to look at if you go on the Brewers Association's page is to take a look at the number of new breweries that have opened up every year and take a look at what percentage of those have closed. Over the past five years, very few of those craft breweries that have started have closed down. Um, I don't know what the percentage is or what the percentage fluctuation is. I believe it's less than 9%. Um, so if we start to see that expand a little bit, you see it drift into the double-digit area, that would absolutely be a sign of the industry perhaps reaching a plateau. Um, but over the next five years, I'm sure the industry is going to perform pretty consistently, certainly faster than the breweries industry as a whole. When you, um, when you look at the different categories um, as defined by the Brewers Association, uh, you, know, you have your, your large national brands, your regionals, your small microbreweries and clubs. Is there, is there any particular one of those groups that's going to feel the impact of a slowdown more so than, than others, perhaps? I've always sensed that those that have become deeply entrenched in distribution could stand to lose more quickly than some of the brew pubs for some of the reasons that you had already mentioned with consumer fatigue, with bars choosing to reduce the number of tap handles. I think generally local brew pubs are a bit more insulated to the effects of an economic downturn, um, but I, I think both can be susceptible to it. Some of what uh, some of our other guests that we've had on uh, talk a lot about, um, and, and these are small, uh, um, very regional. I mean, they, they're outside of our state in some cases, but they're very, very small local microbreweries. You couldn't even categorize them as a regional brewery. Um, they talk a lot about community and about the support that they that they gain from their local community. Um, and I, and I wonder to what extent, you know, for those who are, you know, one, two, three breweries in a, in a community of a reasonable size, um, if, if the loyalty of their consumers will help them weather, uh, that storm, uh, versus, you know, those who, who try to expand, uh, they're, they're in neighboring states, but they don't have quite the same loyalty factor as, as, uh, those who really focus closer to home. What are your thoughts? So I'd be, curi- I'd be curious to hear what uh, Chris's insight is on this. But from our perspective, the, the establishment of a brand name is so essential to all alcoholic beverage manufacturers, but specifically for craft brewers, mainly because their method of competition is not to undercut the competition by, you know, charging very low margin products. That's what the AB invests are designed to do. And in the minds of craft brewers, they are not necessarily competing with the macros so much as they are with other craft brewers. So really being able to effectively communicate the marketing of their brand is so important. Yeah. So we've identified four criteria for our head of the class status. Um, uh, The the first criteria is um, produces delicious beer. The second one is you dominate within a 30 to 50 mile radius. The third is you know when swift expansion is necessary. And then the fourth is uh, acknowledges your strengths and respects your weaknesses. And to speak on, you know, on that point, um, the 
the community, the the local, the the dominating your local market is so critical um, right now for for you know for sustainability and um, to continue the, the the community feel. Um, and what that's going to do is that's going to give you opportunity to anchor loyalty in, in your local market, uh, understand uh, the true um, tasks associated with with uh, dominating market, and then you can expand uh, from there. I I believe right now that um, breweries are expanding into territories uh, with a shotgun approach. Um, without the sale, without a, a, a sales and marketing plan, without the, the feet on the ground, without the right budget, uh, I estimate opening a new market uh, should cost a brewery between twenty-five and thirty thousand um, dollars, and to, to really open the market the right way and gain gain traction there. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it, and to speak to to Nick's point. Um, Craft brewing is uh, it's small scale manufacturing, which is an oxymoron to begin with. Um, light manufacturing is, is what some people call it, um, and manufacturing wins on two fronts: price or volume. Um, as Nick said, InBev wins on volume. Um, craft brewers must understand their value, must understand their brand, and must price that the right way. Uh, when a brewery, when a craft brewery begins to cut price. Uh, that they're that's it's it. They've now entered a black hole, which they probably will not emerge out of. Mm. When you talk about the expanding uh, in, into a new market and the cost of that twenty-five to thirty thousand, are you, you're not necessarily talking about moving into a new state. You're, are you talking about just moving beyond your thirty to fifty mile radius? Yeah, uh, yeah. Markets can be defined by distribution area. Um, yeah. They can be defined by geographic area. But yeah, that that number um, in, includes uh, salaries. It includes travel. It includes POS. Yeah. It includes events. It includes advertising, media. Um, to really let that market know, hey, we're here and we're staying. Uh, yeah. Come try our beer. Um, I think in, in your opening, work with, uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to uh, say, yeah, of all the breweries you work with, um, how many of them understand that cost and investment uh, in order to expand? Is it widely understood, or, or do you think people are, are underestimating that cost? I, I think people are underestimating it on a, on a grand scale. I certainly talk about it. With my with my customers, and yeah. um, bring it top of mind when we're talking about expansion, um, and um, sometimes I'll hear, well, we have a connection to that city that's nowhere near our local market, so we need to send some sort of beer there because a majority of our investor base lives there, or that's not a reason to expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is, um, you that's what FedEx is for or UPS, but trying to open a market. Um, that you have no business being in is, is in my opinion, it del- uh, has the consequences of it hurting the brand. Yeah. A few weeks back, we had Bill Cherry from uh, Switchback, founder of Switchback Brewing uh, here in, in Vermont. And he talked uh, about a very thoughtful, me- methodical approach to 
expansion, um, which has served them well. They, they, um, they're not everywhere and they don't intend to be, and they're very careful about their expansion plans. And uh, it seems to be a, an excellent model, which you're, you're kind of echoing here. Um, it, it, it's interesting when I speak with some local, very small breweries and they, um, they work with distributors, uh, but the distributors don't necessarily uh, take this 30 to 50 mile radius approach. They, they take their products sort of into their entire distribution channel. Um, and sometimes I wonder whether that's the, the best approach. Uh, I, I mean, everyone in the in the the beer supply chain has their you know, own motives, and that's why it's important to have uh, an account uh, manager. Uh, even if you have distributors, if, if you're not self uh, distributing, um, account managers and and those account managers are our sales directors are constantly talking to the distributors and and kind of leading them uh, based on what the vision of the company is based on what the strategy of the company is. Um, I want to I circle back and speak to Nick mentioned competition and competing. I've, that's a relatively new term for craft breweries as well. It's, it's, it's hard to really talk about competition when you're meeting, you know, you're probably meeting at a state guild meeting um, once a month or sometimes even more frequently if you're in a, um, even a city group. Um, so, that is going to become more of uh, the, the the front topic is is where do we stand uh, among our local peers, our statewide peers, mm-hmm. and and how, how do we run this business? Because at the end of the day, it's it's a viable business, it's a complicated business. Um, the fact that it's light manufacturing, you're already starting at a disadvantage. Um, so. You gotta you gotta figure that out. A lot a lot have just so, settled on the laurels of their tap rooms, uh, but there's there's a lot of opportunity out there to keep the brand strong. Mm-hmm. The the you mentioned a tap room and and this is um, you know one of the trends that we're seeing is uh, not that many years ago uh, a brewery that had a tap room um, or had a place where you as a consumer could consume their products. It was a, uh, a brew pub, but today almost every microbrewery of any size uh, has tap rooms and some of them have gotten pretty, uh, pretty interesting and elaborate and, and people are referring to some of these uh, places as destination breweries. And so it, 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 that's a trend that I imagine you are seeing as well that uh, sounds directly to customer the margins are so much better and uh you you can get feedback from customers in ways that you might not if you're if you're working just through your distributor are you both seeing that trend yeah absolutely yeah absolutely. um so i mean i what i'm preaching now is is that um the tap room is the freshest place to get beer um, it's if you're if you're in a non-self distribution state and you're dealing with a distributor, um, you know the freshest place to get the beer is uh, is is the tasting room. You have an opportunity for various treatments. You have an opportunity for an exper- to offer an experience, um, and the margins, of course, are um, 
without go without saying uh, I'm I'm actually trying to find another um, industry that has the margins uh, that transfer from the 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 tap room, uh, but I have I haven't been able to find it. So any other artesian or craft industry, um, so it's 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 a good idea to to concentrate on the tap room. Chris said uh, bottling, kegging, these are costly activities, and a lot of new brewers that don't have a significant amount of startup capital are really going to struggle to to expand into that realm. Um, I think a lot of new brewers are actually foregoing purchasing their own capital and equipment, um, choosing instead either to rent or do part of the pilot brewery strategy as opposed to investing in their own um, you know, bright tanks and, and fermenters and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've certainly uh, in the Northeast seen a lot of, uh, you know, canning services and they roll in, can the product and move on. And and that doesn't come without cost. Uh, What are your thoughts in terms of uh, breweries working in a more collaborative way to share uh, some of the expenses? You you mentioned earlier, uh, Chris, a, a sales rep and you've got to have people on the feet on the ground going out and, and talking about your product. Is there any opportunity when you look at canning services or, or purchasing uh, uh, cooperatives or uh, sharing of sales reps? Uh, other industries have these models. Is this applicable to, to the craft industry? Yeah, there currently is uh, a buying co-op that is, that is, being created, um, and I think they they actually have a application process, and you have to be the right size, and and it's going to get you everything from grains to car rentals, uh, similar to like a another industry uh, buying buying option. Uh, at the local level, you know, w- once again, given the light manufacturing, even if you combined, um, I think seven or eight. It, what I'm trying to say is it would take a number of breweries to get to the tipping point where yeah. um, uh, uh, co-purchasing or, or would, would make sense. Okay, mm-hmm. Anything below it, two or three breweries, I don't think are going to uh, make it uh, wor- worthwhile. Um, as far as the sales force, I've heard of – and I've actually heard the, the term phantom sales uh, or a phantom sales person where they're – um, one person is, is representing a couple different brands or breweries, and th- it just didn't work out because uh, you know where do you you know where do you put that loyalty to? And um, I could see it working on big beer, but at the smaller scale, uh, I, I don't see it uh, working out. Uh, I, I think the mobile canning is a good option, uh, a bridge to get you to your own canning line. Uh, but like you said, there's very little margin there uh, when another person has to touch the product. Yeah. Yeah, I agree that in any sort of rural area where there's only two or three brewers, doing some sort of cooperative effort probably wouldn't wouldn't be feasible. But when you look at large urban areas in which there are a lot of aspiring brewers who want to start up a, a, a small regional uh, brewery, but they can't because whether it's, you know, regulatory hurdles are so massive, uh, the capital investment is very restrictive. Um, I see sort of a, almost like a culinary incubator type model, but for brewers, I see that as something that could be very successful. And to be honest, I'm surprised we haven't seen more of this at all in the industry. 
Yeah, I know in our area, and you're reading more about the uh, cooperative breweries, and I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know how that's going to play out here. It's relatively, you know, sort of in the in the early planning stages, uh, but other other communities do have cooperative breweries. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked into the uh, the benefits, uh, you know, the finances of of going that route. Uh, but I I did want to. Um, I want to circle back to uh, Chris's paper because um, you you, you uh, uh, predict that there will actually be um, uh, a number of breweries that are looking for um, other alternatives. Well, I mean, your paper itself talks about um, you know is this an excellent time over the next year and a half to be thinking about selling um, or merging with another brewery. Um, or plan a workout. Uh, could you explain your thinking around those those options? Yeah. Um, so in the call, I've I've discussed um, consumer fatigue. I've I've touched on distributor fatigue, and really the the last of the trifecta is what I call ownership fatigue. And ownership fatigue is going to be uh, the definition that I made up is it's no more economically viable to keep the brewery open. Um, I believe there's an enough appetite for every brewery opening in the United States. It's at what point do you say this is too much work for what we're bringing home or what the the, the regulatory hurdle or the competition fight, and, and that's going to come from, from the owner's, um, the owner's standpoint. Um, my... So, so the the three the three transactions that I talk about are sale, and the sale would be uh, an outright sale of the company. Uh, and and the reality is is there's just there's a number of breweries out there, a very few number of breweries out there that are even eligible for this category. Uh, I would put it as low as 50. Uh, and of those 50, you would need to find buyers or, or breweries that actually want to sell. Um, the next phase would be a merger, uh, and that would be a collection of sister breweries coming together, um, not for a payday, uh, however, for um, uh, collective vision, um, capacity, um, leveraging strengths and weaknesses for a payday down the future. Uh, so, you know, uh, we saw a cycle in the 90s. We're experiencing a cycle now. There will be another cycle um, in a decade or so, and I think uh, a, a well put together uh, merger of breweries could could experience something awesome at that next cycle. Mm-hmm. And then, so the workout would be uh, the the economic viability I was talking about, um, and I think I even address it in one of the questions where um, uh, you know what is it what what it, how would a work what does a workout look like? Um, hold on, I'm looking up the question now. It says, what are some indicators that a workout is in my future? So your financials are weak, payroll time is stressful, and distributors have cut code, uh, beers uh, out of, uh, excuse me, distributors have cut orders, beers out of code, employees are leaving for competition, and then leadership is fragmented. Um, those breweries, and it's it's happening. It, it, it's happening. I think more widespread than we want to admit. Um, the ego that got them into this game and the momentum that has kept them open until today r- r- really needs to be examined. And um, uh, 
there's ways to salvage the brand. There's ways to salvage the metal, and that, that's really what I use as a workout. I I tried to use the the, the, the most gentle word that I could think of, uh, but I'm saying this is going to be a real option. And um, I, I, do you want to talk about my estimate, my 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 number yeah. estimate? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Okay, so I estimated I I, I use whole numbers, um, four thousand breweries, thirty percent, uh, twelve hundred breweries. Um, I said what twenty four per state average is yeah. twenty four per state. Yeah. Um, m- maybe a little high, but but if you think about it, um, I think it's it's very that's very achievable. Um, um, in Florida, I think we have two hundred breweries here. It's very likely twenty four are going to close. Um, uh-huh. Um, and then go to even more saturated states. Um, in larger states, and such as Texas and the West Coast and Virginia, where you have breweries on every corner now, um, it could they could make up for the states that don't hit that 24 um, mark. And, and so, um, I'd love to hear Nick's. I know, I know Nick, you just got the paper probably 20 minutes before the call, but I'd love to hear your <laughs> thoughts on my bold statement. Now in. As, as far as the mergers go, I, I completely agree that the mergers are not something that's particularly feasible for, for these small local brewers. Um, but, but, I, but I do think that there's, there's an increasing push among the, the largest brewers. Obviously, the AB InBev, SAB Miller thing is, is pretty substantial. Um, and I, and I, I think that the industry is sort of tentative in terms of they're, they're, they're waiting to see what happens after this particular merger clears through in order to see sort of what the implications of it are. Um, but it, as far as the, the economics of a, a small brewer merging with another, that's not particularly something that we do in our research. Um, so I'm, I'm not as familiar with that, the, the logistics of those types of deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we look at, at mergers and acquisitions, are, are uh, smaller breweries, should they be concerned about this trend or will this likely have minimal impact on them? I think it will have a, a, a material impact for sure. Um, I also agree that in terms of the macros targeting craft brewers, Chris is absolutely right in the sense that there really are only 50 or so of these these brewers that, that might have any sort of uh, national brand awareness among consumers and are therefore worth pursuing. Um, but as far as the rest of them go, uh, it can be more of an issue as far as distribution is concerned. When you've got a major company like AB InBev dominating over half of the market as far as distribution, um, it can definitely have a material impact and it can dissuade a lot of these small newer brewers from distributing at all and choosing to go exclusively with the brew pub, which is something I think a lot of these newer breweries are starting to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, is there um, a movement to, um, I know distribution is, is ever present on people's minds these days, particularly with the, the new uh, ruling. And do you, do you see a sort of a wave of new, uh, specialty craft distributors. I know that they're they're happening, but do you see an increase in the numbers uh, to sort of counter this concern around uh, the control of distribution, which may uh, may end up starving the industry? Yep, I absolutely think so, Chris. I don't know about you. 
Yes, um, I, I I think they're they're good options for the right size brewery, um, but but once again, um, you know what's going to be their experience, what's going to be their footprint, uh, what's going to be their investment in cool space, uh, all that is important to a brewery that really wants to uh, leap this brand wall that's emerging right now. This this brand wall is is, is constructing and the. The brands that want to uh, be at top of minds of their distributor and uh, continue to grow, dominate, and then grow out of their market are going to need um, um, a powerful, competent distributor, in in, in my, my opinion. But um, I personally have a couple clients that are with the smaller distributors, and they serve them well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Let's uh, let's talk for just a minute about um, the um, lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the 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 um, impact of mergers. Uh, when you have two, obviously they have to be a reasonable size and growth, and and they bring something to the market, but. What are you seeing in terms of those mergers and what happens to the the two brands? Well, from, from our research, the past five years for mergers have just been explosive. I think it all kind of kicked off with the AB acquisition of Goose Island back in 2011. And yeah. at the time, that was considered to be sort of a significant merger or sorry, a significant purchase. But it was only valued for $38 million. I believe, yeah. and I'm not sure what the volume of Goose Island was at the time, but I think it was comparable to Ballast Points when they were sold to Constellation for a billion. So you just look mm-hmm. at the pure valuation of these mergers, and it's just completely astronomical. Um, another thing I have noticed, though, is that 2014 and 2015 really did seem to be a peak for these mergers. You've got you know, founders selling a stake, uh, Harpoon cashing out on some of their, uh, some of their holdings, I think Sweetwater, Southern Tier, had, they both sold up to a private equity. But 2016, yep. perhaps it was because of the AB InBev SAB issue. There seems to be a little bit of sluggishness, maybe sort of um, kind of trepidation to, to continue on with these mergers. I don't know if that's because people are waiting to see how it plays out or if the, the, the purchase frenzy has kind of died down a bit. What do you think, Chris? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in my paper, I talk about uh, why would you sell, and when uh, what Nick alluded to when when someone's offering you exorbitant multiples over what your industry yeah. typically gets in mm-hmm. a sale, you sell your business. I mean, there's just um, it, it's just something you do. Um, um, you somehow figure out you sell a portion of it. You somehow figure a way to stay plugged in, um, uh, and then uh, you know you look at the the guys that the 500 guys that made it through the 90s. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would guess their you know their average age is 50, for late yeah. 40s, early 50s. Um, what's their runway for for work? How much longer are they going to be working? And and is it possible to build that kind of wealth in that time? So when you look at these two factors, uh, you got to say if if an opportunity comes knocking, I, I've I've got to think about it because it really it it kind of goes back down um, 
to business and understanding the value. Um, I, I agree with what Nick said on the, the volume of transactions. We are in the fourth quarter now. A lot of stuff happened in the fourth quarter of last year, so there may be some, some deals that, that pop up. But um, uh, you have to be, number one, a national brand. Number two, you have to be at a certain size. And number three, you have to be willing to sell. And there's just – the numbers are minuscule as to what people think. Um, um, so that's what – When I, you look at the, those valuations and you see – I mean, we've talked a lot about mergers and, and acquisitions, um, but – there's also the, the private equity firms that are investing uh, and taking over, you know, even more so, I guess, today than, than previously. They're minority uh, investors and in firms. Um, does that suggest that, you know, private equity is, is seeing these valuations and that's a, a primary motivation that they have uh, behind their, their interest in the industry? They see a potential for down the road if everything is, is running properly and growing properly, that there's a big payday down the road? I personally don't think that private equity acquiring a lot of these craft brewers is going to be a dominating trend. I still tend to think that a major brewer purchasing the, the full rights to a, a smaller brewer is going to be the standard traditional practice. Um, I, I'm, I'm less likely to, to. I'm less inclined to think that private equity would see beer as something that can generate an immediate uh, high profit return for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the private equity that we have seen has experience in consumer goods. Um, they they understand the space. They may be hedging another uh, investment they got into, but at the end of the day, they are looking for a payday, mm-hmm. um, which is why they're going after what we described before, uh, national players, highly profitable, willing to sell. Um, I see another trend popping up where uh, larger craft breweries are going to start looking to um, take over smaller breweries. Um, and that could be um, just taking over the space and, and using that capacity in, in, in another region. That could be co-branding, um, um, that could be, you know, a, a number of different things. Um, but, yeah, I think the private equity that gets into it is getting into it for because uh, they know what they're doing. Because I've, I've spoken to private equity that have not had consumer good experience, and they quickly run away from the deal because they just don't, they don't get it. Um, but the ones mm-hmm. that do, um, I mean, there's a couple of brands out there that, that will give them a nice return. And you know what else is interesting, too, is that um, Anheuser-Busch has a sort of a venture capital arm called ZX Ventures. I'm not sure if you read about this recently, but they just acquired Northern Brewer, which is sort of the premier uh, homebrewing supply company in the U.S. So perhaps the answer isn't necessarily, at least for private equity's interest, perhaps the answer is not necessarily to pursue um, small craft brewers but to kind of scout out other potential areas of growth that have so far been untapped, like the home brewing market. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We'll yeah. keep our eyes on, on that as we look to the future here. Um, well, um, there are a lot of topics here that we could, uh, we could explore in much greater depth. Um, 
we'll save it for another show. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time for today. I'd like to really thank Nick Trillo from Ibis World and Chris Farman from Small Batch Standard uh, for being with us today and adding uh, their valuable insight. Uh, so thanks, thanks guys. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, You're welcome. Chris. Thank you. Uh, and for a link uh, to Chris's paper um, referenced here again and again, um, please look on our Facebook page. Uh, we will list it there uh, with a link to that. And um, for our listeners, uh, if you've dreamed of operating your own brewery, if you haven't been scared away from, uh, from the conversation today and are looking uh, perhaps even for a career change into the craft beer industry, uh, the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer Certificate offers the necessary industry-specific knowledge to make that possible. So again, check us out on our Facebook page, uh, University of Vermont uh, Craft Beer Program on Facebook, or 800-639-3210. In November, uh, we'll have a guest, uh, Justin Kazmark, uh, Director of Communications for Kickstarter. Uh, we'll be discuss their experience with helping to fund various brewery-related campaigns. Uh, and until then, uh, please don't forget to support your local breweries. And once again, thanks to, to Chris and Nick for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.